So you know that time when your kid whines and cries so much that you finally just give them the thing you didn't want them to have? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so there are outlines in the back for you guys this week. Can't believe the way some of you guys are addicted to those things, but... You know, you left-brainers, I just don't know how you do it. I mean, I completed two doctoral degrees faking it with my right brain the whole time, you know? And so the outlines are there for you. Jesus came into the world as a transformational blessing. See you, high school and middle school kids. I was just checking to see if you're paying attention. It says right here on my notes, in big letters, dismiss middle school and high school kids. Sorry, guys. Awkward. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, John. I knew exactly what you meant when you said, hey, Bubba. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. All right. So Jesus came into the world as a transformational blessing. He came as a blessing. He didn't come as a judge. He came as a rescuer. You know this, right? Could have judged us, but he came to rescue us. And he came as a blessing. Christmas, he came as a transformational blessing, a way of changing us. There's a transformational process that's meant to occur in the life of every believer. Are you being transformed? Who knows what I'm talking about? Have you noticed you're different than you were? Have you noticed? You're not done yet, right? But you're different than you were? Have you noticed that stuff that didn't used to be important is suddenly important? Have you noticed that stuff that used to be important isn't important? Have you noticed that you're hanging around people with you used to be sure you wouldn't like? Did you notice that? Look around this room, right? You're being transformed. That's what Jesus does. He transformed everybody he touched in the Gospels. Everybody. Even the Pharisees. He encountered the Pharisees, and some of them were transformed. Nicodemus came to him. He transformed everybody. He's transformed you. He's transformed me. I'm not supposed to be this guy. But by the grace of God and the transformative power of Jesus. Well, during this period before Christmas, which the church likes to call Advent, I just really felt led that we should focus on the transformational power of Jesus as the blessing. Last week I introduced it to you with... uh, with Isaiah chapter 9, the prophetic reference to Jesus, that the people walking in darkness have seen a great what? Light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A what? A light has dawned. And so the first aspect of the transformative power of Jesus Christ is to bring light into our darkness. You know, the Bible says that we're born into darkness. And so what we consider to be light is really darkness. We're born into this secular worldview And it's darkness. It doesn't really show us everything that's there. There's a measure of ability to see to it, but then we define our lives by what we can see. But there's so much more that's going on that we can't see until the light comes on, right? So Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will walk in the light and will never walk in darkness. So part of walking in Jesus is to have increasing measures of the light coming on. As we get closer to Jesus, as we live more sacrificially and obediently with Jesus, the light becomes brighter. And among the many things that this light does in our lives, it shows us what's really here that we couldn't see because it was dark, right? And so like back in that little prayer room and we're seeing God move, it's like that there's this reality happening in this room right now that's the kingdom of God reality 
that's the move of God, it's the power of God, it's the presence of God, and kind of sitting here, we're kind of like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's here, I sense that it's here, right? But until the light comes on, you go, whoa, I didn't know I was so busy in here, right? Let's illustrate. Turn off the lights for us for a second, would you? So, let's just take off the lights for a minute. Now it's different, eh? Can you still see me? I have a reflective spot on the top of my head. I think I might be going bald. I know. Listen. So it's different all of a sudden, right? And you can't see as well as you could. You're pretty sure that there are other people in the room. But for sure you sense something is more than what you can see now, right? I mean, if this were your reality, if this were the normal standard of your life, you'd have to, you'd have to adapt, wouldn't you? I mean, some of you could just sleep openly during my messages if we kept the lights like this, rather than try to fake it. I want you to think about it, that if this was your reality, you know there's more in this room than what you can see, right? You just know it. You sense it. Well, so it is with Christ. You know, we're born into darkness. And then we meet him as our Savior, and we're saved. And that's all fantastic. And yet, we say, I'm really glad that I'm going to heaven after this. But I sense that there's more. I sense that there's a dynamic of the kingdom of God that's available that I can only see when lights, please. Lights. (laughs) All the lights. Seamless transitions here. If you want seamless services, try the Nazarene Church. They're, they're very good at what they do. I'm just saying. We, we don't know how to do what they do. They're very good at it. They're very good. Now it's different because the light's on. You couldn't see. You sensed it, though. But now you can look around and see. This is Jesus, the light of the world. You sense you sense that there's a kingdom dynamic, a kingdom reality. As we draw closer to the Lord, as he becomes a more relevant reality in our lives, as he shapes our worldview away from that secular worldview we we're talking about and into the supernatural, which is the actual real worldview, then we begin to see what was here all along. And we begin to see the, the sick become well. We begin to see the works of the Bible become reality again. So Jesus first came as a transformational blessing from darkness to light. Second, he came as a transformational blessing from a national perspective to a personal perspective. And here's what I mean by that. From Israel as a nation to having an individual relationship with God. Matthew chapter 3 in your Bibles. Go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 3, the first nine verses. Uh, it talks about John the Baptist. Very interesting guy who was called by God, to prepare the way of the Lord. So this is the preparation of the way of the Lord. And this is part of the Advent celebration, is getting ready for the coming of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Don't you love that? We just talk about, like, the kingdom of heaven is the reality that can't come through Jesus. And he's going, Repent, because it's very close. And this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, meaning John, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. 
People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So this became very personal. They were going, something was shifting. A personal confession of their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where um, he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. So these guys were coming out and they were Pharisees. They were part of the nation of Israel and kind of the big dogs in, in Israel, if you will. And they were coming out. And he says, you brood of vipers. He calls them snakes. You snakes. Who, who warned you? you? Do you know what's coming down? And he said, uh, "Produce, show me something. Show us all something that shows that you're repentant. And then look at the next verse, which is so critical. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't, say, don't think you can say that just because you're of the nation of Israel that everything's all right. Because he says, I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And so there's this essential paradigm shift that's happening right now as Jesus is coming into the world where it used to be enough to be a part of the heritage and the lineage of Abraham. It used to be enough to be Jewish. If you were a faithful Jew and, a, and, and, and part of the, the covenant ritual and the covenant worship and all that stuff, that's good, you're good. That the annual atonement for you covered you and that sort of thing. And now there's something that's happening that's different. And he's saying, don't say that just because you're a Jew means you're going to make it into the kingdom. Because God is shifting. There's a paradigm shift that's occurring right here, right now. Now, if you notice in reading your Bible that in the Old Testament, God dealt primarily with the people of Israel as a nation, didn't he? As a group, with a few notable exceptions along the way. But as, for the most part, as things went in Israel, for the nation of Israel, so it went for the individual. So you can actually be a good person, an upright, righteous person, as part of the nation of Israel during one of the nation's disobedient times, and the judgment of God came on the whole nation. And so as it happened in Israel, as a nation, it happened to you. Because God dealt with people as a nation. But the coming of Jesus Christ had a dramatic impact on that. The clear intention of God was to transform Israel into something else. When Jesus, listen, when Jesus Christ came, it was the fulfillment of God's prophetic promises that he's going to transform Israel into something else. Anybody know what that something else was? It was the church. It was the body of Christ. And if you just look at the terminology, Old Testament, Israel is dealt with primarily as a nation, but then when you talk about the church, the church of Jesus Christ, then it's talked about with such intimate terms like the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And so it shifts from a national perspective to something very personal that the redemptive purposes of God for Israel was to create a new covenant and transform Israel into the church. The primary reason that Jesus Christ was sent was for the lost people of the nation of Israel. Do you know this? Do you remember that time when a woman came to Jesus for healing 
And he said, I, I, can't, I won't heal you. He said, I won't heal you because she was a Gentile. Because she was not of the... He said, he said, I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, as her answer was, but Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off of the table. And dogs of that dogs was a really relevant term in that day for Gentiles. So even, yes, Israel is at the table, but she said, Lord, even the dogs get to eat the scraps that fall. Jesus says, Oy vey. It's in the Hebrew, isn't it? Oy vey. Oy vey. Harry says he's studying Hebrew. Oy vey, he says. I have not seen such faith as in all of Israel. And your faith has healed you, boom. So that was a notable exception there. But I think it's really interesting that Jesus first just turned her down flat and said, I have come to do something with Israel first. And what he came to do was really to change us, to trans- or change them, transform Israel into the church. How did he come to do this? A couple of ways. First, through repentance. He came to call Israel to repentance. And repentance simply means to turn back so that the, the, the school or the flock, the herd, whatever, is going one way. Repentance means to turn away from that. So the world is pulling us one way, right? The worldview, the secular worldview, the philosophies, the ethics of the world are pulling us one way. And to the extent that they are uh, opposite to the plan of God, we are called to repent. The worldview leads us into sin, leads us into what the Bible says, you know, is just gratifying every desire that we have. That's something called debauchery. Like, if it feels good, I'm going to do it. And that's the natural pull of the world, yes? And that's the, that's the darkness. We turn, we repent, and that's how we start the journey, by repenting. It always starts by turning away from the world and turning to God. Now, I want you to notice that as Israel was called to repent into something, which we'll get to in just a second, that there's a narrowing effect on repentance, isn't there? So when we turn to God, I mean, how many of you, like me, were like, oh, look at all this stuff. <laughs> Anybody? It's like there, our, our, our life is really wide, but there's a lot of junk in it that is not productive, right? Why? Because this way it was the only thing we could use to anesthetize ourselves from the pain that we weren't connecting with the God we desired. And so we keep filling it with stuff and stuff and stuff, and, and, and we find out that's pr- not productive. In fact, sometimes it's destructive. Repent, something happens, we turn to God, and we go, oh, there you are. Oh, crap, what about all this stuff, right? And as we get drawn to God, have you noticed it's like stuff starts falling off? So there's less stuff in your life than there used to be? That's because you're being transformed. And with every step closer to the Lord that you take, it's like, ah, I can't take that with me. Jesus said, broad is the gate, and wide is the road that leads to destruction, and there are many who find it. But he said, small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life. Don't be surprised that when you turn to God, don't accept this version of the gospel that says, oh, you turn to God, you're going to get more stuff. You're going to get less stuff. But you know what? You're going to want less stuff. I mean, who's the richer person? The person who has the most or the person who needs the least? And so as I... That's pretty good. I turn to God. And stuff starts falling off, right? It doesn't fit. 
Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So there's this narrowing effect that Israel, much of Israel, was not willing to cooperate with. But it starts with repentance, but it doesn't end there. Repentance isn't the end of it. There has to be an expression of faith. There has to be a release of faith at that point. Repentance doesn't get the whole thing done. God was calling Israel to repent and the fulfillment of the first covenant, which was law, was the administration of grace. And they had to have faith in something in order to be recipients of that grace. Now what's faith, you say? Well, faith is, I think, a balanced combination of belief plus trust. You need both of those dynamics in order for it to be faith. Faith isn't just belief. Faith is a combination of belief plus trust. I mean, I think there are people who may sit in churches, maybe this one, who say the things of belief. I believe in God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I believe these things. But who have not yet come to the place of putting their trust in Him. And there's a difference between belief and belief plus trust. And faith is having not only belief, but a release of trust. So my friend Rick Stevens from the church here and I, this summer, we built a bridge on my property. We built a bridge because I had to get over a gully. So many of you have been out to our place. We're blessed with this 26-acre little farm, you know, and lots of you have been out there for different things. We had different events and stuff out there. Well, there's always been this place on our property that was largely inaccessible because of this woods portion that we have. But it's this open area that Karen and I have always just affectionately referred to as the acre. Because it's like an acre over there that is open, but because the woods are the way they are, you can't really get there without a machete. And so we've always sort of dreamed about, um, you know, going over there and setting up like a little picnic area or something. And there's actually a cross out there uh, in, the, in the woods that you can really just go. Some of you men know, because we went out there in our Ironman camp out this summer and really connected with the Lord there. So anyway, I always thought, i got to build a, for 10 years I've been thinking, i got to build a bridge over there so we can get there. I don't know what made this summer the year, but it was this summer. Hey, honey, I'm building the bridge. Budget it. She says, okay, build the bridge. She says, how much is it going to cost? I did a bunch of stuff. I told her it was three times that much, as it turned out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I know. And so anyway, I went to Lowe's and I got these six by six posts and stuff. You know, thing is, I don't know how to build a bridge. It's going over this gully that often has water and it's about three feet off. You can't get there. You got to have a bridge about 16 feet long, about 12 feet wide. You feeling me? Okay. So I start, I draw it out on paper. I talked to a couple people about bridges, learned a couple things and stuff like that. So I got a piece of paper and then I go down and I start digging big holes and stuff, and Rick brings his backhoe over and stuff, and we just start messing around down there, and, and we start putting these six-by-six six posts in. I've got an eight-inch I-beam down the center of it and stuff. I use two-by-tens sideways and then put some two-by-twelve treadways on it, all this stuff. And it took us a couple months because it was like two hours at a time. You know, we never really had a ton of time to work on. So it's done. Hey. Bridge is done. But you know what? We had to test it, right? 
I mean, I believe there was a bridge there. Am I right? There's a bridge. But I don't have any idea if we can drive a tractor over it. Because we've designed it in my mind so I could drive my 3,500-pound tractor over it. And ultimately, lead hay wagon. You know, some of you have been on hay rides out at our place, right? Yeah. And we could take a load of people over the bridge to the acre. Right? And so there was the bridge. I believe there was a bridge. Did I have faith in the bridge? I don't know yet. Did I trust it? How do you trust it? You just simply say this. Hey, Rick, why don't you drive your tractor across there? <laughs> so I played all engineering like I was down there in the gully. I said, you drive your tractor across there, and I'll watch. I'll see if anything happens under here, all right? <laughs> well, what are friends for? <laughs> Rick goes, okay. <laughs> he heads around. Yeah, you're looking good. And he drove his tractor all the way across the bridge. It didn't fall down. Who had faith? Rick. Rick. Now, once Rick had faith, I had faith. That was easy then. I drove my tractor across there, right? Was that real faith? Borrowed faith. So... We'll have hay rides out there again, because we always do. And some of you will be the first on the wagon to go across the bridge. <laughs> we haven't done that yet. And you will believe, because you'll see that bridge right there. And you will see me down in the gully just looking underneath. <laughs> Hope you make it. Belief. And trust. Trust in what? Israel was called to trust in something they could scarcely believe. Trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Became a stumbling block for them. They were asked to have faith, not in themselves, but in the actual finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. The cross, the shed blood. With Jesus as, they were saying, the fulfillment of centuries of messianic prophecy. And God was saying, have faith in, in him. Have faith in him. And he was a stumbling block. John 1, verse 11 and 12, create a new reality. They said that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So Israel largely didn't do this, with but a few exceptions. Though this was the way to fulfill God's redemptive purposes for Israel, to become the church, Israel largely didn't do this. He says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Verse 12 says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, pistuo is the Greek, those who had faith in his name, faith in his name, became the sons and daughters of the living God. That's where you come in, most of you, I would guess. That's where I come in. I was not born of the lineage of Abraham. I was born into the tumbleweed darkness of being a Gentile. And the Lord came in in his light. And he said, I want to make this really personal for you. I want to make this really, really personal for you. And so part of the transformative thing is that, you know, not that you are a, 
a Christian because you joined a church or because you signed off on a card, like became part of the nation of something, but that you passed through this very narrow point where in repentance and faith you surrendered to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. And when you do that, no matter which direction you come, it all goes this way and you're all delivered into the body of Christ, the church, so that you are not saved into isolation. Here's a terrible thing that's happening in America today. Individualism has become an idol so that isolation is sort of the end result of evangelism. Are you saved? Good. So you're like, you're like this individual person saved. You're saved not into individualism, but into the body. You belong to us now. I know that sounds like a cult, but it's true. You belong to the body of Christ. You're not your own. The Bible says, don't you know that you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Now this has some important ramifications. If we belong to each other, then we have to respond and we have to get over our stuff. I have probably never offended you. But you got over it, didn't you? Somehow. Somehow. You've probably never been at at odds with anybody in the fellowship, have you? But you got through it. Do you know that Jesus talked more about mutual horizontal forgiveness than he did about heaven? (laughs) You're born again into the body of Christ. You are not your own. Terrible thing is happening in America. It's a fracturing of the church. Everybody thinks they're on their own thing. The The American business model has been the mantra of the American church. When you have beautiful believers in this place and beautiful believers in that place, and they're kind of doing it their way as though they're in competition with each other. Glory to God, help us. This fracturing, this competitive nature of the church, this fracturing of the church is weakening the church. When was the church the strongest? Acts chapter 2. Verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread of the fellowship and the prayer, and that many wonders and miraculous signs were done among them. That's power. Read on what it says next. It says, None of the believers considered anything they had was their own. They were all of one heart and mind. That's when the church is powerful. That's when the church is powerful. When the church fractures, it loses its power. So when we see healing, it's sort of sporadic. You see, as the church goes, so goes the individual fellowship. So why? I mean, in the first century, they were healing people left and right. It was like, well, of course we'll heal you. That's the power of God. That's the love of the Father on you. Now it's sporadic that it sort of becomes, hey, did you hear that they're healing people over at the vineyard? You see how wrong that is? It's because the church is split. The church is fractured. Gave away a bunch of old sound equipment this week. We were blessed earlier to get a bunch of cool stuff, that digital stuff, stuff that probably doesn't matter to you, but matters to some of us. Finally get the drummer caged. <laughs> stuff like that. We had a bunch of perfectly good stuff. And you know, the choice is what? Put it on Craigslist for a couple thousand dollars or send out an email to area pastors saying, hey, I got a bunch of stuff. Anybody want it? I, 
I didn't know I had so many friends. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of sarcastic, and it was just such a joy to reconnect with some pastors I haven't had an opportunity to talk to in years. Saying, are you serious? You're going to give away a 32 channel of Alan and Heath board? Like, yeah. Come get it. And there's a joy that's just welling up when that happens. And there's a power that comes back to the church when the church stops competing and starts cooperating. You're saved into the body. There's only one church. It would have been a ludicrous question to ask somebody of the first century, so what church do you go to? You've been asked that, right? You've asked it. What church do you go to? In the first century, we'd be like, what? There's only one church. (laughs) What do you mean, what church do I go to? The question really is, where do you park your car and worship with people? There's only one church. And as you're saved through repentance and faith, you are not saved into isolation. You are saved. This is not you. This is not a picture of the church. That's the picture of the church. Father, we just ask your blessing here as we uh, bow before you. As we take a few moments to respond to you in faith and belief. We repent, Lord. We repent of however many degrees off center we've been walking. Maybe 180, maybe two degrees off, but it kind of amounts to the same, Lord. Would you get in center, center view for us all, each again. So that you would draw us through repentance and faith into this uh, full surrender and trust in the cross of Christ and what he's done for us. Would you deliver us into the body of Christ in such a way, Lord, that, that we would understand that we do belong to each other because you, we belong to you. Would you overcome the competitive spirit of individual fellowships, Lord? God, how many people are being lost while sheep just move from one fenced-in area to another, God? How many sheep are being destroyed as they move from one to the other, as they go outside of their own covering? God, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We welcome you in this place. We welcome you to come now and to extend salvation to all of us, extend new salvation to those who are ready to repent and believe, extend salvation to us in the broken parts of our lives, extend salvation to the sick and heal them, extend salvation to the hungry and feed them, God, draw us closer into that place, even though some of our stuff can't go with us. Just draw us closer into it, God. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come now. Present power of this place.